Hello, everybody. This is Charlie from Anthrax, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Turn it up. Anthrax loves you. What's up, everybody? This is Max Cavalera, Soulfly, Cavalera Conspiracy. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. This is Coast of View from Hatred, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, hey, what do you say? This is Bobby with some overkill, and that's right. I am on Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 188 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I am your host, John. We're coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the internet. Episode 188, we have three special guests. We have joining us from the band Overkill. We have Bobby Blitz joining us. We have author Lena Dawes, who wrote a really cool book called What Are You Doing Here? And then we have Costa of the band Hatriot, who have just dropped a new album. So we're going to get to all of those. Let's start out, we're going to talk to Bobby Blitz. Uh, we're going to play a track from the uh, album that's now actually about a year old. The album came out in March of 2012. The album's The Electric Age. They're going to be in Pittsburgh for an Iron City Rocks present show on February 19th, playing the altar bar. Uh, in episode 187, I uh, have to apologize, I did make a mistake. Overkill is currently on tour with Testament, not Exodus. Uh, they're doing a kind of a one-off gig in Pittsburgh. Uh, on their own. Uh, Exodus is playing at the Rex, which I did mention in that show as well. So we're getting Exodus for one show, Overkill for another show. Unfortunately, no Testament, but uh, time will tell uh, when we get them. So we're going to play a track called Come and Get It from The Electric Age. Then we're going to talk to Bobby Blitz. Bobby Blitz, how you doing today, Bobby? 
Pretty good. Sure, everything's well here. Good, glad to hear it. Um, guys, I guess, have been on tour for the last couple of weeks with uh, Testament and Flotsam and Jetsam. How's that been going? Pretty good. I mean, this is like, uh, I suppose, uh, an 80s two-fisted punch. I mean, this is, um, I suppose, where a lot of even the modern thrash from the younger bands came from. So I think right. that, uh, you know, when you get uh, three bands like this out there, and the fourth one is uh, Forearm from uh, Australia, okay. it's almost takes on a traveling festival kind of a mentality. You know, there's uh, it's event-like. And I think that when you create events, you create excitement. So we're getting full rooms. Uh, we're getting over-the-top responses. And uh, it seems like, uh, you know, all the bands are succeeding uh, on this level right now. Good. I mean, it's it's it seems to me like over the last year or so, a lot of the old bands are, are making like these huge comebacks. Like the Anthrax had a new album out. You guys released another album, uh, you know, last year. Uh, Flotsam and Jetsam had a new album out, uh, and it, I think that says something for like you know the power of metal and the power of thrash. Um, I mean, do you got do you see that on your end, like a big resurgence coming back? No, I mean, there's, there's one thing about Overkill, and I, uh, obviously I pay attention to the scene, but we've released regardless of what right. <laughs> you know, the climate was. And I think that that's one of the things that we're about, that we've always done this because we love it. But w- without that being said, or with that being said, um, I do see a healthier scene. And I think that that healthy scene is that uh, people uh, or bands have releases with uh, value in the day as opposed to value in the past. And I think that this is where that interest comes from, is that these, you know, the New Testament record, Dark Roots, for instance, is valuable in 2013. Uh, Overkill's Electric Age, valuable in 2013. And that's where that excitement comes from, and uh, I suppose that uh, uh, high interest that is uh, that, that keeps this thing going for all of us. Yeah, I, and I, I mean, I, I'm I'm loving what's happening right now because I'm getting to see all the bands that I grew up in, in high school listening to and, and checking them out, and, and it's great seeing it again and seeing a, uh, you know, a younger crowd coming out and appreciating the music. Um, you know, you mentioned that you guys never even stopped during, you know, during like the grunge years or whatnot. Was it harder back then during the grunge years? I mean, obviously it was, but I mean, you guys managed to put out albums every couple of years. Um, how did you guys, you know, go about doing that? Well, you know, I, I mean, this was a double-edged sword. I mean, there was there was tough uh, uh, things to accomplish during the time, but I, you know, one of the great things about this type of metal, and when you said just uh, before this that younger people are coming out, is that it, it holds value. I think, um, right. and I think that value is based on its purity. The people who make this type of music do it because they want to make this type of music. It's not a fad they're going through. It's a it's kind of a lifetime experience. I mean, you're in a metal band once, you're always a metal guy. It's just that simple. You do one right. record, you're a metal guy the rest of your life. That's just the way it is. But I think that what happened during that grunge era is that well, the metal scene still existed. It was just overshadowed in popularity by other right. things. So it kind of forced bands to the underground. So we actually had some pretty fruitful times during that because a lot of bands just stopped playing. A lot of metal bands said, I'm not stop playing anymore. So, you know, one day there's 80 metal bands that are touring, and, uh, you know, the next week there's eight. Right. So I think that would be, you know, so, so I think it kind of worked out for us with regard to uh, helping keep our longevity and really kind of helping keep our focus with regard to it. Popularity aside, uh, I can't say that grunge era or those 90s were an awful time because we had some of our, uh, some of our best uh, moments during that time. Right, right. 
Um, a little bit about the the latest album, The Electric Age. When I uh, when I first heard it, I know it. Uh, you know it, it. It all your albums, you know, like every year, every time you release it, it always seems fresh, but it still has that overkill, you know, sound to it. Um, and you've been, you know, you guys have been doing this. I mean, you and Didi have been doing this for better part of almost thirty five years. Um, the uh, how how do you keep it fresh? Well, I think first and foremost, the love of. Um, I think second of all, uh, staying contemporary with regard to production. Um, if we can stay contemporary, I think, you know, one of the things I'm most proud about the electric ages is that it sounds fresh from a production standpoint right. from note one. Uh, that it's audible, uh, it's separated and loud at three, not a compressed record. So I think that that's one of the, one of the keys right there is being up on your production skills. Um, and staying current with that. I think when it comes to songwriting, um, there's a fine line between, let's say, style and repetition. Uh, so you don't want to repeat yourself, but you want to be able to get your stamp across, uh, like you were saying, you know, that we're a recognizable band. So I think that what you do is you, you, you have this big bag of tricks that you've, you know, accumulated over a 25-year period of writing. And, you, and instead of just tossing it to the side saying, oh, I could never do that or something similar to it, you take it out and you manipulate it, and you, you place those puzzle pieces into different orders. And you don't do it uh, consciously. I think it's really more of a subconscious thing. Right. Because, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about metal, we're not talking about, uh, you know, some progressive movement. We're talking about, you know, a relationship between guitars and double bass drums. So how do you make that happen, come across and sound like 2013? So I think that that's the key to it, is, is by staying fresh, by not neglecting all the things you've learned on the way up, manipulating them into the modern day. Exactly. I, I think that's great. I'm, I'm glad you actually even mentioned, you know, it's not compressed because it seems like a lot of bands now are just all about brick walling it and there's no dynamic range. And, and I mean, it's, it, I think it takes away from the music. Well, this was, this was mixed by Greg Reilly out of, uh, we produced this, but Greg, uh, Saturday Coover, and he has, he has unique uh, repertoire. He's done uh, Machine Head's work with, or he's worked with Fear Factory or Strapping, uh, but he's also done Coldplay. Uh, he's also done Sarah McLaughlin. He understands Sonic. And right. I think that that's, you know, when when you can get a record to sound loud on three as compared to eight, I think you have a great success. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I love I loved the electric age. And, you know, I was, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys live here in Pittsburgh next week. Um, you know, when you first started, you know, did you think you'd be going this long? No, I, you know, I, I've always been more of a guy who uh, was based on immediacy. You know, I, I partnered with Didi Verney for a long period of time. I, I think he's a little bit more calculated and, uh, plans, uh, where I'm more about the opportunity, right. um, and, I, and I think somewhere in there that, that mix of two different personalities when it comes to even self-management, which we had done for a long period of time, um, kind of lends itself to not missing the calculation, but also not missing that uh, opportunity you can jump on. So I really think that, uh, that I'm more of a day-to-day kind of guy, and that's what I attribute any longevity to, is that... Hey man, I'm in, I'm in Philly tonight. This is the biggest show I've ever done. And if I think of it that way right. and bring that attitude to Pittsburgh, um, I'll probably afford myself more opportunities. So I've never I've never looked into the future, and, and even to this day, <laughs> doing this for as long as I have, I still don't. 
Right, right. I mean, you know, being a singer, have you have you found it hard keeping your voice up? Because I mean, your vocals, I mean, sound just as good as they did, you know, twenty five years ago. Uh, not, not necessarily. You know, I, a lot of it is luck. Uh, a lot of it is, um, you know, disposition. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, to, to some degree, health. Um, right. It, it's, you know, you put all these things together, and, and it just hasn't failed me. It, it's, um, you know, sometimes it wears out, like you know, other things. You know, an athlete's knee would wear out, or uh, you know, or a hockey player's hip. Or, or, you know, a, a runner's uh, ankle. Uh, you can wear a voice out of the vocal cords. But uh, I think somewhere in there, I, you know, I, trained, I was trained early on. Um, uh, genetically, my mom is, you know, in her 80s, and she still sings like Bird. Wow. I mean, so somewhere in there, everything kind of crossed kind of in, in a good way for me to be able to still deliver vocals like I do on the electric cage. I mean, they still sound intense. They sound gritty. Uh, they still can carry melody. Uh, I don't have to, you know, I'm, I'm not an auto-tuner guy, you know. It's right. like, if I'm not going to hit that note, uh, I want to hit it. If I can't see that note in my head, I won't sing that note. So it's, um, you know, in, in, in my opinion, it, it's the most important thing is to, to do it natural um, and then uh, and, and do it at a, at a high level, which I think I've been able to do all these years. Yeah, like I said, the album sounds great. You guys sound great. You guys sound tight. Um when you is there when you're out you know do you get a chance to listen to other bands are there any bands out there now that you know you're really into? Well, sure. I mean, I like some of the newer bands. I mean, I like Havoc. Um, right. Oh, jeez. Well, you know, we've taken bands like Warbringer with us, um, and, and we've had them on a couple of tours with us, and I've seen them develop into something. Uh, Evile from UK's done on a couple of tours with us. Yes. Uh, I suppose they're not new anymore, but um, that they always caught my ear. Uh, you know, uh, with regard to what I thought was not just a copy type band, but a band that was heading toward originality. Um, and I have a kind of a quick few. I mean, I'll still listen to rock and roll and right. old stuff, uh, but I'll also listen to metal and, uh, you know, and, and stuff, for instance, my wife likes stuff. Right, right. Well, who were your influences uh, growing up? Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to say with regard to that because, you know, when I was growing up, it was much more about. Uh, I, was, I was bass player, and okay. you know, even to this day, I, I, I tell uh, I tell my dad uh, there's a funny story about when I left uh, I left the university, and you know, he was thinking that I was leaving uh, to pursue you know free beer and girls, and I was <laughs> telling him I was pursuing a, uh, a recording contract, and we got that recording contract. Um, but you know, the idea was I loved music from the beginning since I was a kid. I mean. Uh, we were always in my house. My mom had cut a couple of records. Right. Uh, but I, you know, I was all over the Black Sabbath, but I had a mother who sang, you know, I- Irish melodies. So it was, it was kind of unique I- influence there because I'd love to hear my mother sing. I mean, there's some of the, the earliest memories I have musically is, you know, being, uh, being a baby and being sung asleep by my mother. So right. I mean, the, the idea I think comes all the way before even that metal, that it's somewhere in the blood. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting into the Sabbath, and I got into the Alice Cooper, and then I got into the Ramones, and then and it started steamrolling. So, you know, by the time high school had come along, and, uh, you know, I'd heard Judas Priest said, Wings of Destiny, I, I knew what I wanted to do. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing. Like, you know, just that love of music, you know, it seems to have just, like, propelled you forward, and it's great that you're still having a lot of success with it. Um, 
you guys seem to be touring constantly right now. You got shows booked, you know, clear up until, you know, summer. And what, you guys are going over to Europe after this U.S. tour then? Yeah, we do. Uh, in April, we do uh, you know, our first full Scandinavian headline. I right. mean, we've done shows in Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. Uh, but we're going to be doing our first full one, uh, primarily focusing on that. A few shows in the Baltics. Uh, I think a couple in Russia are being added. Festival in Turkey. We I mean, should keep us over there for about three and a half weeks. And then the summer festivals start. Um, right. And, you know, we usually block that out. So it's, um, I don't know, it's, you know, it's a great promotional thing. And you get to do these big festivals. And it's really cool because you hook up with people you haven't seen in a long time. And you get right. to do these Bad shows, and you know, I mean, I, I saw Chef last summer, and uh, I saw Death Angel, and you know, guys I know over all these years, and you get to see the bands too, you know, and that's and get to see them play. So that that's kind of cool, and they're and it's usually just weekend pop in and pop out. So we'll right. do that for the you know for the entire summer until uh, a tour that we're working on for late 2013, like September. Okay, and then uh, any plans, you know. New album, do you guys write on the road or do you finish the tour and then write? Well, I think the ideas happen on the road. Okay. Um, you don't, you don't let the ideas pass. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic age where you can, you know, anybody can whip out their droid or their, their, their iPhone and record an idea. You know, I mean, right there. You know, you have acoustic guitar, you can even hum a riff into a voice recorder and save that idea. Right. And I think that that's one of the, you know, one of the cool things about the modern day is that no ideas slip by. Uh, so I do that with regard to lyrics and uh, uh, melody lines. Um, and then I, when I get home, I, I just kind of sort through them, and then I pass the stuff to Didi, and he passes stuff to me, and then we kind of see where it's going. But I, we're, we're not in a planning mode to sit down and write. Okay. I, can, you know, I can't really say that it never stops if you're always collecting ideas. Right, and, you know, like you said, technology today, I mean, everyone's phone can be a, a scratch pad now. Um Real quick, you know, before before I let you go, I wanted to, you know, in the news recently has been all the news about Randy Blythe and, and his trial over in, in Prague. What, what are your thoughts on that? And has that, you know, changed the way you guys approach touring at all? Well, I, I can tell you this. Um, uh, Randy's a good friend. Uh, Randy's one of the most stand-up guys I know. Yeah. Um, Randy is um, one of the most honest men I know um, in the business. I mean, he is what he is. And... Uh, I think that that speaks volumes about him, and I mean that uh, only in a positive way. I'll never comment on, uh, on another country's laws because right. it's something I don't know about. Um, and I, I know that in my heart, uh, I feel that this will have a positive outcome uh, with regard to it. Always tragedy when somebody loses their life. I mean, you can't right. minimalize that. Uh, but to, to give an opinion, I won't. I can give... Uh, let's say, much more support as opposed to opinion uh, to Randy. And he knows that from us. Uh, we, we met on the John Dan tour in 2007, and, and he, this is the kind of guy he is. I mean, we, we finished the set with a song called Old School, which is a real punky type of tune. Right. And the next morning I was, uh, you know, getting a cup of coffee, and he said, I'm Randy Blythe. I said, hey, pleasure to meet you. He goes, I'm all over that last tune. I said, where do you want the mic? <laughs> so he's, he's that kind of a dude, you know. He's, he's personable uh, he, uh, and honest, 
And I, and I thought that that was honest, what he said to me. Because I, and he would stop interviews on that whole gigantic If he was doing an interview when we were on stage, he'd have to leave the interview and come up and sing with us. <laughs> so it speaks volumes about, in my opinion, as a musician, about what kind of dude he is, you know. And, and, I, and I think that he'll get through this uh, with flying colors. Uh, again, a tragedy, the life was lost. But I think Randy will come through uh, uh, on the positive side of this. Cool. Yeah, and, and hopefully, you know, everything can just move past us and, and, and move forward. Um, mm-hmm. I want to, you know, thank you for taking the time for speaking with us. You know, I've been a big fan of you guys for a long time, and it's it's an honor to, you know, actually get to talk to you. Um, and I, like I said, I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, here in Pittsburgh coming up. And that's a headlining show, so in Pittsburgh, that's going to be without testament, right? That's the night. That's going to be great. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah, should be awesome. All right. Um, thanks again, and uh, good luck. Good luck with the show tonight and the rest of the tour. And uh, we'll see you here in the Berg real soon. Talk to you soon. Bon Jovi in concert. Live in Pittsburgh. The man, the band, the hits. Don't miss Bon Jovi. It's my. February 21st at Consol Energy Center. No opening act. All night. All Bon Jovi. February 21st at Consol Energy Center. Buy your tickets now at Ticketmaster.com, 800-745-3000, and at the box office. Have a nice day. Don't miss Bon Jovi, produced by AEG Live. More at BonJovi.com. Have a nice day. Have you ever listened to an album and thought to yourself, man, I could do so much better than that? Well, here's your chance. My name is Sue, and I've decided to write my next album live and online at RageAndApathy.com. So come on over, leave me a comment, and tell me what you think about the album and where you think it should go. And as a bonus for you Iron City Rockers out there, I will give you an exclusive copy of the first song as soon as I get it finished. So stop on over to RageAndApathy.com and join my madness. All right, big thanks to Blitz from uh, Overkill, Bobby Blitz, for joining us again the 19th of February. Alter Bar in Pittsburgh. Again, they'll be touring with Testament across most of the United States, uh, so you can catch them uh, when they come to your neck of the woods. Next up, we're going to talk to uh, Costa, who is a guitarist of a band called Hatred. Hatred, we featured in episode, I believe, was 154 with Steve Zetrozusa. Uh, no stranger to uh, thrash singing has done Dublin Death Patrol and Exodus. Uh, a phenomenal album. We were really excited when we talked to him last time. The band Hatriot are finally releasing their first full-length record. The album is called Heroes of the Origin. And we're going to play a track from you, for you, I should say. This track is called The Mechanics of Annihilation. And then we're going to talk to Costa about the uh, project. <laughs>
tuning in. Uh, today we have with us from the band Hatriot, Costa Barbatakis. How are you doing today, Costa? Not too bad, not too bad. Good, Just, good. Uh, doing real good. Those of you uh, listeners who don't know, uh, Hatriot's a relatively new band uh, based out of uh, San Francisco, fronted by Steve Zetra-Souza, formerly of Exodus. Um, and you guys got a new album coming, or you guys got your first album coming out uh, next week. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the album? Yeah, um, basically it's the uh, name of the album Heroes of Origin. Um, it's a collection of songs that Petro and myself wrote. Um, pretty much uh, what we were trying to do is just kind of mix in a little bit of that modern stuff in, but capture that old school Bay Area thrash sound that all the old school, you know, all the thrashers really like. And I think we really achieved it with this one, you know, just try to make a best album that we could. Hopefully everyone else thinks so. I just I had, I had a chance to listen to the album, and you know, as I was listening to it, it you know, it had that you know the drum sound that everyone wants, you know, from the thrash, and you know, it just it took me back. I grew up listening to like Exodus and all the you know bands from the you know back then, and you know, I, it really took me back. But what I really liked about it was you know the modern feel to it. You mentioned that you and Zetra wrote most of the songs. Is that pretty much primarily two of the main songwriters? Yeah, um, that's kind of how the formula works. Is uh, I'll come up with some riffs, throw a song together, and uh, show it to Zet, and Zet will just sit there and listen to it, and you know, we'll sit on it for a couple of days, and then um, you know, we'll have the lyrics ready, and we got a song. Um, how long did the album take to write? Um, the album itself, well, uh, over the course of like writing the songs and getting the right lineup together, took a little over a year. Right. Um, the album itself, we recorded it in about two weeks. Yeah, we just kind of finished, uh, you know, we took care of the music, and then Zach came, went in the next week and took care of all the vocals. And the uh, current lineup, like, uh, it's, you know, you, Zetro, you got um, Miguel on guitars, and you got Zetro's two sons on uh, on the rhythm section. Um, Nick just joined the band recently, didn't he? Yeah, he um he replaced uh, uh, old, old drummer Alex. Uh, Alex had, to, had some endeavors to follow that, you know, kind of got in the way. So uh, we let him go do his thing, and know. Uh, we cutted a couple of drummers, actually. You know, we had a couple of auditions, and, you know, they all were pretty good, but Nick just came in. You know, he wanted to audition. He came in and just killed it. Right. He just came in, played everything like, you know, just like it was nothing. Just came in. It was perfect fit. We, instead of, you know, taking a week or two to show him, you know, all the old songs and reteach him, he kind of just knew everything. Right, right. He came in and nailed it with his first shot. Did he, uh, did he play on the album? Yeah, uh, Nick did uh, play on the album. All the drums are Nick. San Francisco, you know, it's got that thrash sound, and you know, it seems like recently a lot of those old bands are, are reviving. I guess. I mean, I guess the scene's always been there out in San Francisco, but you know, it kind of ebbs and flows, you know, throughout the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And it seems like there's a big comeback coming, and like you guys are really poised to to take advantage of that. You guys got any uh, touring plans? Um, we're uh, talking to, you know, some people, trying to get something. We really want to get on the road as soon as we can. Um, as soon as that album drops, you know, a couple, uh, couple of weeks late I would be ideal, you know, just to get on right. the tour right away. But um, as soon as we can uh, get on the tour, that's kind of what we're shooting for, just to get out there and, bring it, you know, bring it to the world pretty much. Yeah, it's, you know, I can't wait to, you know, see you guys out on the road. Hopefully you guys... You know, end up in Pittsburgh because I'd really love to check you guys out. Um, but like I said, the album's great. This is, uh, you know, next Friday, Heroes of Origin. Um, can we talk a little bit about how the band formed? Because, you know, you guys 
you know, younger, and then you got, you know, a legend like Zetro fronting the band. How did the band come together? Was it, did you guys start by Zetro, or was it vice versa? Or? Um, it kind of just, uh, was both me and Zet. What ended up happening was, uh, I was in an old band out in Modesto, you know, where I'm from, and, uh, I was playing the, ironically, I was playing the very last show with this band. I was going to quit the next day. Right. And, uh, Zet was there, because, uh, Nick had a band back then that was playing with us. So he was there supporting his son, and uh, we were actually opening up for Hyrax, so, you know, there she Hyrax as well. And, uh, you know, we went on after his son's band, and he was, I just saw him watching, you know. I was hoping, you know, I was, you know, when someone like that's watching your band, you're like, you know, kind of trying a little harder too, you know, you this guy you grew up listening to watching your band, you're like, you want to impress him. Thought I would go out with the band, you know. So, I played the show, he comes up to me, we you know, asks if I know who he was. I look at him, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I know who you are. Grew up listening to Exodus, I think, uh, I think I know who you are. We just, uh, sat down and, uh, listened, you know, just talked about metal and kind of, you know, it was, it was basically that's what we did. Talked about thrash, talked about, you know, what we like, what kind of metal we like and all that kind of stuff. And about a week passes because we had exchanged numbers and, you know, I thought nothing of it really, uh, you know, I'm like, cool, I'm gonna, Right. Met one of my influences, and you know I'm out of a band now. I'm gonna move on with life. And then a week later, I get a call from Zet, and you know he wanted me to come out there and showed him a couple songs that I had written and started jamming them with Nick back then. Okay. And uh, he, a couple of them were already demoed. I um, had went and demoed them, and uh, Zet took them, and we went in the studio, and he uh, laid vocal tracks on it. And you know I was just listening there, and it was coming out badass. Right. Right. And, you know, uh, he went around showing it to, you know, people he trusted. And they all were, thought he'd rejoined Exodus, which was flattering on my part. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. Uh, we ended up uh, forming a band together. Uh, first it was uh, him. Uh, Cody was always uh, going to hop on board. We got Cody and myself. Uh, old guitar, uh, the other guitarist was uh, Drew at the time, and then we had Alex. And, uh, Drew and I had some personal differences, so, uh, that kinda is what caused, uh, you know, the Drew to not be in the band. And, uh, Alex, you know, he just had, wanted to go do his own thing. And which is, you know, he's actually playing drums at the Crepit Birth right now in the, another band arcade, so he's, you know, glad to see him doing his own thing and happy, you know. Um, and, uh, that's how we got Nick in the band, and then uh, Miguel replaced Drew. And we have the Patriot lineup. We, Got down together, wrote some more songs, and you have yours of origin. <laughs> um, now, growing up, were you always like into thrash? What were your influences? Um, well, I, my father uh, plays uh, Greek folk music, and I eventually, uh, I actually do play that as well. Okay. But um, you know, I always kind of grew up around that. I was about five or six years old, and you know, my older sisters and my cousins, you know all of a sudden started wearing, you know, Metallica shirts and jean jackets. So I wanted to explore what was going on. And, you know, I heard, you know, Metallica kill them all and, like, Slayer and Iron Maiden and stuff, you know. And, right. And I kind of got hooked. I remember being a little kid actually sneaking into my sister's room to take her cassette tapes and listen to them. I remember I was, like, in fourth grade, I stole her Slayer tape. Nice. Wouldn't give it back to her. We got in a good argument over it. <laughs> so I've been in the metal for a real long time. Um 
got seriously, like, when I started playing guitar and stuff, I got really more serious about it. So I listened to bands like Death and Pestilence and right, right. Old Tupper, you know, kind of evolved. But, yeah, I was about five or six years old when I first got my earshot of metal and been hooked ever since. Um, so, like, uh, in your opinion, Bay Area scene still thrashing like it always has? Because, you know, you look at books, like, have you ever seen the, the book Murder in the Front Row? The, you know, the whole photo history of way back when, you know, yeah. all those bands were up and coming. One thing that I yeah. always got from that book was, like, the camaraderie that was all those bands had. Um, is that um, still happening out there now? or? Oh, the fans are insane. Um, we've played uh, a couple shows out there, and let me tell you, they still thrash just as hard as they did back then. Right. Kids, all that stuff. Um, bands, even like, you know, veteran bands, they still, they all still got it. They still have the same energy they used to have back in the day. They, it's like nothing changed when you go and play a show out there. Like you go up the time warp back to 1986 and, you know, it's just right. a badass thrash show. Cause, you know, growing up in the desert, you really never got that. <laughs> you know, living what you, uh, you know, grew up listening to and in that scene and whatnot. I saw in the in the press release for the album it said that uh, Chuck Billy and, and Phil Demel had some guests appear on the album. Is that true or is that? Um, actually, Chuck was gonna lay some backup vocals on it, but okay. uh, it ended up not working. I think they ended up having uh, some uh, shows or some something like that to do. I don't exactly know any details on it, right? But uh, Chuck ended up not being able to do it. Um, Phil actually is a uh, part of the backups. The backup vocals, you know, the gang vocals, yeah. shouting. It's a bunch, a bunch of us just got together and screamed the words, you know. The one fun part of recording is when it's all done and you're with a bunch of your friends just screaming in a microphone. Uh, Phil was a part of that. So, uh, yeah, Phil was uh, in the backups. Yeah, like I said, it's you know it's got to be great, you know, working with all your idols and and and, and living in that scene right now. You know, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but you know, is, is there anything you want to say to the fans out there? And uh, yeah, uh, your version comes out January 25th. Pick it up, and uh, hopefully you're not disappointed. Uh, got everything you want: slow songs, fast songs, the budge in your head. Buy it. <laughs> yeah, I'll back you up on that. It's it's a great album. It does not disappoint. I want to thank you for coming on the show today, and uh, I wish you guys best of luck, and hope to see you out on the road real soon. Thanks, and uh, hope to see you out there, too. Can't wait to go rock Pittsburgh. All right, a big thanks to Costa for joining us on the show. Again, that Hatred album uh, just dropped on the, I believe it was the 12th of February. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, iTunes, and all that good stuff. A great great album uh they're really really clever song titles uh these are uh well-written lyrics so uh if you're a fan of a band like megadeth for example i think you'll really enjoy hatred and obviously you know what you're getting with uh Zusa on vocals next up we're going to go into our heavy metal book club segment as you know we've had uh, a lot of great authors on this show over the years and in episode 187 we officially dubbed the segment heavy metal book club uh unfortunately we all can't get together and shoot the shit about uh, a book you know, like Fifty Shades of Grey or something like that. But we all love hard rock and metal and stuff like that. So we uh, are always fortunate to get some really great authors on the show. And uh, this time's no different. We have Lena Dawes, who's written a book called What Are You Doing Here? A Black Woman's Life and Liberation in Heavy Metal. So in honor of uh, Black History Month, we thought it would be kind of a really cool segue into this book. The book is available through Bazillion Points. That's B-A-Z-I-L-L-I-O-N Points. 
Amazon.com. Uh, you can get it at Amazon and places like that as well. Uh, really, really cool book. Um, and I think even you know, take away the the racial aspect, just women in heavy metal uh, is an interesting subject. Uh, you know, I, I, we try to steer away from the obvious questions when we interview female artists. You know, what is it like to be a female in, in heavy metal? But, um, you know, this should be a really, really interesting read. So Aaron was fortunate enough to get to talk to Lena, a super cool uh, lady. So we're going to play that interview for you now in the Heavy Metal Book Club. Heavy Metal Book Club. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have with me today author Lena Dawes of the book, What Are You Doing Here? Lena, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Great. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. So let's talk about this book. For our listeners who are not familiar with what this book is about, could you give us a quick synopsis? Um, sure. Um, this book is a um, it's part memoir, um, and uh, but the most important thing it, what I did with this book was I interviewed a number of black women um, fans of metal, hardcore, and punk, and some musicians and industry workers just to kind of document their experiences within the um, their respective scenes. And uh, there was a couple, there was a number of areas that I want to focus on that um, through the research before writing this book, you know, that came up and I personally had experience such as sexuality in the uh, metal scene, um, race and racism, um, being the only black person at a show, um, how important the live performance is within these genres. And basically the book is, um, overall, I wanted to kind of, throw the idea out there that extreme music scenes um, can be very beneficial to black women as it provides a forum in which they can assert their individuality and kind of like the same way as men do, for instance, in the metal scene, use the music as a way to um, alleviate their, you know, like stress and just kind of let out a lot of frustrations in a way that, in the real world, they're not able to. So let me ask you this. When you were putting this, this, this book together, like what, what kind of drove you to, to collect all this together? Because I want to get into a few of the, the great, great topics you touched on, but what, what drove this, this whole thing to really, really come about? Like what made you say, you know what, I've got to document this? Well, I, for a number of years, like I've always been a metal fan. I've been a metal fan since I was a kid. Um, and then, you know, there was, a number of things that I had experienced personally that I wanted to find out if anybody else felt the same way, if anybody else had experienced certain things because it, it didn't really make sense to me. Um, another thing that um, drove me to write this book was, you know, meeting a couple of people um, or interacting with, you know, people at shows that were so bizarre that I wanted to kind of really kind of think about it and flesh it out a bit more. So my background is, you know, before I was a, you know, serious writer, I was really involved in um, a lot of anti-racism work and a lot of social justice work within Toronto. And, um, you know, that interest coupled with being a longtime metalhead made me kind of want to kind of put the two together and really kind of investigate these things that I had experienced from that, from that view. So another thing is, too, is the difference between kind of, let's say, going to a show and somebody calls you a bad name or somebody pushes you or whatever, and it's obviously race-based, 
and you're thinking, you know, oh, I feel sorry for myself and maybe I shouldn't go to shows. That kind of feeling so sorry for myself kind of over the years as I got older translated into getting really pissed off and just saying, look, you know, I think that there's a number of people like me out there who really don't have anybody or to talk to about their frustration, but still want to stay within the scene that they're involved in. And just really wanting to kind of create a, a, a space where people could talk about it and make new friends and really encourage people to get out there to the shows. Because as you know, um, in both, well, in all three, metal, hardcore, and punk, um, the lives, really participating in the community is extremely important for keeping the music alive. Now, you mentioned being like the only, you know, the only black person to show. And one of the common themes that, that I've been getting as I read through this book is that there's a really strong cultural divide between what black people should listen to, what white people should listen to. Why, what, like, why do you think that is? As you did your research, why do you think there is such that strong cultural divide on, well, no, um, you know, you're black, you should listen to this? Because like, like it was chapter four, where, you know, that, that really struck me where, where the guy says, oh, well, you think you're white. I'm like, well, what's, what's the music got to do with that. You know what I mean? So why do you, why do you think that is? Well, two things. Um, the first is that people are stupid. <laughs> Not everyone, but you know, I mean, really, I mean, people are really ignorant in terms of there's, pre, there's um, preconceived or pre-prescribed notions in North American society um, about what people should do and be if they're a certain ethnicity, if they're a certain gender, um, if they live in a certain neighborhood. I mean, it makes it easy for people to understand others if we narrow them down to this myopic focus of what they should be without even getting to know who they are. So that's the main problem. Second of, secondly, like with the music, the history of music has in some ways always been racially segregated. Um, I really focus on the North, America, North American perspective here. And so I, I don't really want to go into European or African or what else is going out there because I simply am not that well-versed. But in North America, in terms of the history of heavy metal and the history of rock and roll, um, going back to the blues era, I mean, the music was created by African-Americans um, within extremely impoverished conditions. And it was a really um, incredible storytelling um, tool to get their individual lives and experiences out there through music because in every other aspect of their lives, they couldn't do it. Nobody wanted to listen. But even back then, you know, blues music was a very race-based music. Um, so, and then with rock and roll, you know, obviously the blues had a, a strong hold in creating rock and roll, but there was a um, time, an era in which, it wasn't accepted, acceptable anymore for black people to listen to rock and roll. They personally, there was people, depending on class and location, that felt that listening to rock and roll was not um, culturally appropriate and respectable because, you know, during the civil rights and then the post-civil rights era, people really had to ensure that lack visibility in terms of desegregation, they had to be perceived a certain way in order to access opportunities that before they were not able to. And one of the things was is that music, rock and roll music, was seen as kind of the devil's music. It was seen as being vulgar, whatever. So, I mean, unfortunately for that, um, 
it was okay for white people though to play rock and roll music and people like Elvis Presley obviously made a lot of money off of it. So I think that I would really say that from the blues era and also jazz and gospel and ragtime and then up into rock and roll, there was these divisions of who should be listening to what based on what they felt the music represented and how that person or the community wanted to be perceived. With hip-hop, too, um, one of the things is, is that hip-hop obviously was created, originated from uh, Black and Latino communities. It was um, created out of it, also the same impoverishment. But as we both know, it's become a billion-dollar empire where lots of African-American and Canadian and European Black and Latino people have been able to become millionaires off of it. And I believe that there's a resentment in terms of this um, subsection of people who, if, if it wasn't for the music and their talent, would be still impoverished. And because it's capitalized on the media and it's become so popular, I think that it, within today's scene, because I've been told, I've been told at shows, um, don't you people have your own music? And wow. to me, that said to me was, there's a level of resentment saying, well, metal is a white man's music, and so this is how we get our rocks off. And then hip-hop is black people's music because it was created by black people. And it's unfortunate that today we're still seeing the, the segregation between it. But it, it's definitely there, and it's still a major problem in terms of black communities expect, um, accepting their kids that are, you know, influenced by myriads of different genres right now through technology. And it's also still used by, um, you know, angry uh, non-Black people who resent seeing people of color at shows. I, and you know, so I just don't get that. Because, I mean, you know, while, like, like you mentioned in your book a few times, too, about, you know, you don't see a lot of Black people at metal shows. And you don't, but... I've never been like, get out of here. I've always been like, yeah, all right. You know, we've got new, new, new fans, new friends, new people to meet. I don't care who somebody is. And, and I'm, I'm just, it hurt me to, to, to read some of the, the racist comments that you're writing about. I'm just like, really? How, how can people still be this dumb after all this time? You know, well, why, why can't we just enjoy metal together, you know? Yeah, well, real, I mean, I think the majority, I mean, it's hard to explain. I mean, I think that the majority of people, I mean, I go to a lot of shows, I write about the music. Obviously, there's a lot of cool people out there who just couldn't care less, and that's awesome. But since the book has come out, I'm still hearing stories from um, black men and women from all over the place who are, oh, I was at a show last week, and this guy said this to me, or this happened, and that happened. And again, when I was, you know, interviewing um, some of the women that were, you know, in the book, some of the stories they told me were just horrific. And I was really, it really upset me. Um, so there still is a problem. Now, unfortunately, one person, uh, if you go to a venue and the venue is full of, like, let's say it's a capacity of 2,000 people, unfortunately, it only takes one or two people to ruin your night. So I think that, you know, I certainly don't want to, say that, you know, there's a huge, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are racist and they don't want us there, but there still, unfortunately, is a problem. And depending on the situation that you find yourself in, it can be pretty awful. I mean, it's not just, you know, people think that if you're not getting beaten up, then it's okay. But just being told that or 
somebody being, you know, racially, using racial, you know, epithets against you or physically putting their hands on you is enough to ruin anybody's night. So it still is a problem, um, unfortunately. But again, it's not, I mean, the, the metal scene, the metal community especially to me has been, you know, extremely accepting. And I've got a lot of, I've met a lot of incredible people, um, you know, in my, you know, in my life and, and you know, where, where I go. But there should be, there's a zero tolerance for bullshit. I mean, there just should be zero tolerance, period. Yeah. Now, I, I'm kind of curious here, because you said that you were doing, like, a lot of work with racism before. For, first of all, forgive my ignorance on this one, but I really thought that a lot of the racism, as far as the black-white, was kind of exclusive to America. I thought we kind of cornered the market on it and, and did most of the dumb things here, so I was kind of surprised to see that it reached into Canada as much as, much as it did. So that that was like the first thing kind of surprised me. But then my second kind of thing here is, um, have you had a chance to visit the Civil Rights Museum down in Greensboro, North Carolina? Like, have you gotten down to the states to that at all? Uh, um, no, I have never been to South Carolina or North Carolina <laughs> at all. It's actually one of the two states that I've never. I mean, I've I've been to almost every state in in the states, but never been there. Um, about Canada, like, yeah, I mean, this is a misconception. And even some of my black American friends think that, you know, we're, we, we've got it so easy here. I think that the difference is, is that, um, you know, Canada, it's, in some ways, it, it, it depends on who you talk to, but I would say it's worse here, simply wow. because it's very passive aggressive. People Gosh. don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to do anything about it. They would rather, and, and a lot of black people do too, in terms of they're not willing to stand up for themselves like a lot of my black American brothers and sisters do. Um, it's because Canada has this reputation of being polite and clean and kind and generous that any kind of divisiveness between its citizens is really seen as a black mark, um, no pun intended, on the whole country. So the way how we deal with divisiveness here is in some ways way more damaging and insidious than it is in the States. I mean, I always say this to people. I would rather know that somebody doesn't like me and then tell me to my face versus somebody stabbing me in the back and catching me completely off guard. And that's the difference between Canada and America. Wow. So I'd, I'd asked about the Civil Rights Museum to kind of tie, tie this together because I was kind of curious now, like, what what Canada's experience versus the States. Because I, I, fortunately, for with my day job, I was down in Greensboro over the summer. And so I don't know if you're familiar with the Greensboro Four and the Woolworth Counter incident that took place in the 60s, but I wanted to, I wanted to go see that because, you know, I, I read up on it and I was very aware. And so they turned that Woolworth into the museum. And one of the things that struck me is going through the whole tour, I mean, just it, it boggles the mind that one human being could treat another human being the way that black people were treated in America and not only do it, but acknowledge it and legislate it drove me crazy. But then there was a, there's a Coke machine that they had pulled out of a garage in North Carolina, yeah, in North Carolina, somewhere in there. And it was meant to be built into a wall. So there's a black waiting room and a white waiting room side. And then the black side was like, um, I want to say like 50 cents more than the white side. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like ridiculous. And I'm like, you know, w- was there that kind of segregation in Canada as well, or is that still, you know, exclusive stupidity to America? Well, I think that because of the immigration, um, the differences of immigration between Canada and America, like basically in Canada, what happened here was up until maybe the late 60s, there was not very few people of black people um, in Canada. Um, Previous to that, there were um, North, um, because of the Underground Railroad, the majority of Black people were actually focused in the East Coast, so um, Nova Scotia um, area and, you know, Halifax. Um, So the sprinkling of black people that were in Ontario, where I live, came, it was like very hit and miss and here and there, and some people came to work on the railroads. So, you know, obviously we didn't have, there were instances of slavery in Canada, but primarily in Quebec, and there was very small pockets of it. And to be honest with you, we like I didn't even know that there was slavery in Canada until I was probably in my twenties. I mean, wow. it's just it was not talked about at all in any history book or anything um, when I was a kid. Nothing, and I'm sure a lot of people would tell you the same thing. It was really wiped out of Canadian history books. So the and then um, in the late sixties, there was this influx of immigration. So um, uh, Canada said, okay we can have people from the Caribbean. Well, first of all, they wanted white people or, you know, Europeans that looked like Canadians first. So they were allowed in. Then they said, okay, well, we'll have some Asian folks so they can work on the railroad. So then more Asian people came in. And then in the late 60s and 70s, you've got um, an influx of people from the Caribbean. So at that time, there was no, obviously, like no um, visible segregation. But what happened was, and I talk about this a bit in my book, was yeah. that um, when the major cities kind of became, you know, the populations rose in all of the main cities in Ontario and Quebec and other parts of um, Canada, they said, okay, we've got too many people of color here. So if you want to come to Canada, you are going to have to live here, 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 and here. So um, when I was growing up in a small, um, a relatively small outside of a small city in, in eastern Ontario, um, there was actually, you know, a handful of black people in the city. And, you know, as I got older, I realized it was because they, were, they said, well, if you want to immigrate to Canada from Jamaica, the Barbados, you, there's more jobs for you if you live in this small town. And so a lot of people were forced, basically, to go and live in these towns where they didn't really want to live but they were told that they couldn't really, they didn't, you know, they couldn't really live in Toronto. And it's also cheaper. So what happened is that then you've got, you know, a bunch of, you know, a handful of black people in an all-white city where they're going to face more um, uh, systemic, institutional, and overt racial discrimination than they would if they lived in the larger cities that were more multicultural. So I grew up being like always one, I think at one point my older sister and I were like, the, or there was like two or three black people in the whole school. And in high school, there was five of us. And then, you know, another one, there was four of us. So we were always the minority. And then you also get kind of socialized with kids whose parents are completely racist and have never been around black people outside of what they see on TV. 
and don't know how to deal with you. Wow. Wow. I, I just, I never suspected that to go on in Canada. I always thought it was something kind of unique to, to U.S. culture here. Uh, so, I don't know. Well, now I'm kind of curious. So what drew you to metal? You know, like, like what, what, you know, and I know you touched on the book a little bit, but like what, what was really that driving factor to say, you know what, this is what I like? Because I'm always curious about that. Because, I mean, you know, when, when, I, when I go to a show, especially like extreme metal, you see so many different types of people. It's like, what makes you like this crazy sound? Because some people can't, still can't believe that I like the screamy vocals the way I like it. I'm just like, I love that stuff. So, like, like what, what drew you in? I think basically the same reasons as it drew you in. I mean, I was just, I was just really, I mean, it was exciting. It was different. I was always like, you know, it, it just caught my attention. Um, I was always really like, I always talk about Kiss as my first, you know, band. And it was really yeah. the visuals that got to me. And it was just something scary and intriguing. And then, you know, as I got older, I just got progressively heavier and heavier and heavier. And as throughout my life, I've gotten heavier and heavier and heavier. So it's just always been this, you know, I just enjoy the music and I enjoy kind of the, it's, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of excitement that in some other genres you don't really get. So like everyone else, I mean, I was just influenced by what I, you know, heard as a kid and what the neighbors around, because I grew up in the country. So whatever my rural neighbors are listening to, I thought it was fascinating but I think, too, it's also, there's a certain power and there's a certain strength in the music. And I really resonated with that strength and that power because I wanted the music to make me feel stronger as a person. So I latched onto it to really, in some ways, toughen myself up to be mean and to be energized and to, um, I guess, just, you know, be feel more powerful than I felt because I I didn't feel like I had any power as a kid at all. So, but you know, it's funny. Like as I read the book, and now as we're as we're talking, like I I identify so much with those same feelings, and, and you know, I I really agree with it, that that metal is is like, man, it just it feels like just a good place for everybody to hang out. You know, it, aside from a few jerks here and there everybody's really on the same page, you know? Exactly. And I think that is the key, is that people need to understand that, that we're all, if you are a metal fan, I mean, everybody, like my, my white male friends who are into metal, they'll get the same crap from their families because they've been fans for life. They're going to get, their wives are going to say, why did you spend all this money on your, why, 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 you know? And, it's something that we all share as metal fans is this passion for the culture. And it's something that is unites us. It shouldn't divide us. So I think what was so frustrating um, in terms of my experiences and the experiences of the women I interviewed was how, even though we, we had this, we were drawn to the music and the culture on the same reasons as our white male counterparts were, we were still treated like we weren't, we didn't belong. And it was because of our gender and our race. But really, if you're in the metal scene, you're a metal head. Like you should, there's this community that, is, that we all believe automatically makes us a member of because we all are buying the out music. We're supporting the band. 
we're all really passionate about it. So it's frustrating when these, you know, the these women that I interviewed were like, yeah, I mean, I, I do this, I do that. And then still somebody just looks at me and tells me to get out. And this is something that they have felt the same way in terms of the music has made them stronger as individuals, has made them able to um, have pride in themselves when other people are telling them that they're nothing. And they're using the same music in some ways as the same way as a white dude would. But we need to kind of get that message out there because obviously it's not transmitting very well right now, you know? Yeah. So it's cool. Yeah, so I do have another kind of fun question here for you. I'm kind of curious on this one. And if you touch on it in the book, um, I haven't gotten the whole way through it. I'll be honest, this has been a slow read for me. But not okay. not not in a not in a way that like it's difficult to read or, or it's boring or anything like that. I find myself rereading the same chapter. Like I will go back and reread it because there's so much to absorb, and I'm just going through and, and rereading and rereading. I'm I'm so like there's there's one section. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head. I must have read like the same paragraph like page like five times, just trying to take it all in and be like, wow, like some of the subjects you know, that you, you talk on. But so. My, my my question here, and this is just kind of to have some fun, because I've been asking a lot of people this lately. Metallica or Megadeth? Like, who would you uh, say, Meta- say, you know? Uh, Metallica. Metallica. So now I'm really yeah. curious why. I just fucking love Metallica. Excuse my language, but I mean, <laughs> no, like, right. you know, Ride the Lightning. Come on. <laughs> I just, you know, I think it was, there's a groove. Yeah. To, I mean, there's more of a groove to Metallica, the later stuff. But I mean, well, I mean, Dyer's Eve is hands down one of my favorite tracks ever. And I just listened to that, and it's just like a full-on assault. Like, and the thing is with Megadeth is, yeah, I just never really got into Megadeth. I hate Dave Mustaine's vocals. Um, <laughs> back, in the, back in the day, James Hetfield yeah. wasn't that great either. But I just never liked. Dave Mustaine's vocals, and I think that to me. But I think that in terms of Metallica, you know, being a thrash fan, just, you know, I, and also the video, it's funny because, you know, I listened to, like everyone else in the 80s, you know, you listen to their early stuff, and then I kind of put them aside for a while. And then when I saw the video for one, um, that just blew my mind. And I just, and that to me was, you know, that flying hair, the, I don't know, whatever. But, I mean, I just, I, I love that band. And, yeah, definitely Metallica fan. Now, how do you feel about the Black Album through Load and Reload era? Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, the Black Album, to me, I like. Um, Load and Reload, um, I, I, it's hard. I think, it's, I think people need to give them a break. I personally don't didn't like it, and Saint Anger to me was annoying because it sounded like Lars was banging on a tin tin can throughout yeah, the whole thing, yeah. and I, I I just couldn't take it. I think that Saint Anger, um, sorry, what was their last one? We no, what was their last album? Death, Ma- Death Magnetic. Death Magnetic was a huge release, yeah. um, and I and. You know what I also like too is Garage Days. Oh, that um, I, I, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, to, if it wasn't for 
man, if it wasn't for uh, that, I wouldn't have gotten into King Diamond or Merciful Fate. Or yep. I mean, it, it opened me up to a whole bunch of bands that um, were around when I was really, really young, but I wouldn't have really considered checking out until I heard Garage Days like years ago. But anyway, um, I think that, yeah, I just, I don't like it when people get really, you know, aggro over Lars or whatever. I think that the load and reload era was, these guys are probably like, look, I just turned 40. Um, They're looking at the other bands coming out at that time. They're thinking that they have to change their image in order to remain competitive and it backfired. I think that their fans, their truth, you know, their their fans are going, look, we want more Ride the Lightning, you know, and we don't want this bullshit. And it just backfired. But I understand that need to say, okay, we've come to a crossroads here. What do we need to do? What do we need to do to still remain competitive when you've got 20-year-old guys coming up? So I think that, you know, to this day, I just saw a T-shirt the other day of, of a, that I, I really, of actually a band that I really like, but I'm not too impressed that they put out this particular T-shirt that I just thought, okay, you, y'all need to, like, chill out a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, for me, Puppets is the record, like, of mm-hmm. everything for, for, for the 80s for me. Puppets just that just sent me in a whole new direction of the way that a band could write and sound. It was so symphonic almost in what was beneath it. And even though it was all guitar. Yeah. You know, and I just, I love that record. And then the little reload thing, just, uh, I, did, I feel so betrayed. I really do. <laughs> well, they, everybody makes, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I mean, Judas Priest went almost disco at one area era. Oh, that's right. There's no, guitar I'll, and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah, and Kiss put out, you know, I, will, I Was Made for Loving You. I, I mean, I think every... Well, yeah, I mean, it was when I was eight and I was roller skating to it, but <laughs> otherwise, you know, I mean, I think everybody makes these, you know, they, you don't know, and everybody is hungry and they want to... I mean, yeah. now we know as, like, I'm more into the underground scene, so I'm not really interested in any band that's like Megadeth personally. But I now, as a journalist, I understand how hard it is to do this as a full-time career, if you're even lucky to do that. Yeah. I know how hard it is to get people to come to your shows, to, to pay for if the van breaks down. I have more of an awareness of how hard it actually is. So in Metallica's case, I just now I can say, well, you know, they, were, they had money in the bank, and yes, they were, they've always been you know, successful, but they're they're allowed to make mistakes too. Yeah, yeah, and, and they earned it. You're you're exactly right. They really earned it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Lena, I don't want to take any more of your time. Um, so, how about before we close out here, you let our fans know where um, you can uh, or where they can actually go pick up your book at. Okay. Well, um, what are you doing here? A Black Woman's Life and Liberation and Heavy Metal is uh, should be available everywhere now. Um, Barnes & Noble, um, you can get it on Amazon.com. Um, you can also get it through uh, my publisher's website, BrazilianPoints.com. If you buy it, in the, probably in the next couple of weeks at least, I find a bunch of copies, so you can pick up a signed copies and a button. But, yeah, it's available anywhere where books are sold. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much. 
Great. Well, thank you. All right. That about wraps up episode 188. Again, a special thank you to Lena Costa and Bobby Blitz. Again, overkill the 19th of February at the Alter Bar in Pittsburgh and all over the country with Testament. Uh, if you haven't picked up the latest Overkill album, uh, do it. It was one of our three picks for album of the year last year. Uh, we did a little uh, podcast with our brothers at castironring.com for Focus on Metal, another podcast that we are affiliated with. Uh, and that was one of my picks for uh, the best albums of 2012. So Overkill really, I think, firing on all cylinders at this stage of their career. Probably, to me, even better than they did uh, in the 80s. So really worth checking out. Hatriot, the album's phenomenal. So uh, another one. If you're a thrash fan of old school thrash, you don't like the cookie monster vocals, you don't like the emo kind of stuff, uh, these are ones you'll enjoy, you know, if you're a a fan of of traditional thrash metal. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. You can find us at ironcityrocks.com, facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks, twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks, and youtube.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Hoping to have a pictorial of the Overkill show. Up on our website uh, early next week. The show is on Tuesday, so Wednesday, Thursday, if you're a Overkill fan and want to see what the event was like or if you're attending the show and you don't want to take crappy iPhone pictures, we'll have some pictures up for you as well. So check that out as well on our website and on our Facebook page. And we want to thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Love us, hate us, whatever. We read any and all feedback. Thank you again. (laughs) 